0: Gather with you, greetings, uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, from your brothers and sisters in uh, in Olds. Um, it is so fun to have these families um, that we can uh, we can get together. I chatting with a couple over here, so come come visit. If you're in Calgary, stop in at the Redemption Church there, and just I, I promise, as so you say, "Hey, yeah, we're from the Redemption Church in Red Deer." Um, you just you're gonna feel that family all of a sudden, and uh, and it's it's great to have that. As Chris mentioned, he's preached for me a few times in uh, in Olds, and uh, I'm so grateful to be able to uh, serve him and serve you in bringing the word here this morning. Uh, if you would turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 1, that's where we're going to spend our time together. Uh, as you're turning there, thinking about this idea of power. Our world today, um, there is the... The, the, the struggle for power. We see it happening right now in the Ukraine. Vladimir Putin, the Russian army, using all of their, their power, trying to assert control over the Ukraine. Ukrainian people, the, the president, they're fighting back, using all of their power to resist, to try to keep their uh, control of their, their lives, their nation. Beyond that, there's this threat of escalating power Right now, there's the battle of the the Air Force versus the air defense that's rising. But but what's next? Where do we go from here? And of course, there's that fear of the ultimate display of power, like full-on nuclear war. There's somebody in each of those countries who has been entrusted with those nuclear codes, who has their their finger on the proverbial red button. Um, It's their job to decide when to use that, that ultimate power. As uh, we watch our world struggle and fight. Today, we're going to talk about a different kingdom and a different power not Russia, not Ukraine, United States, or China, but the kingdom that wields a weapon of far greater power, not just than any of those kingdoms, but than all of them put together. And, and of course, that's the kingdom of God. And this great Weapon of that kingdom the weapon of, of true power that, that dwarfs even the mighty nuclear powers the ultimate weapon by which this kingdom will one day overthrow and replace every earthly kingdom is none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ and that weapon that, that uncontainable unimaginable power has been entrusted to us as believers, you and me. We so easily, so often underestimate the wondrous power of the gospel and therefore the weighty responsibility of the gospel. Our church in Olds, just like yours, we have uh, the very same banner that we set up in the, in the foyer of our building. Lost people saved, saved people mature, mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. That's why we're here. That's what we're about. That's why we have banded together as believers to praise the name of God, to to see him glorified as people are saved. People grow and and mature in the faith. That's that's what we're about. So this good news, the gospel is our tool to accomplish that. And it's powerful. It is powerful enough to, to fulfill that task. If we want to see that happen, we need to rightly understand and then rightly wield that power of the gospel. So as we strive to grow in that, I want us to look together at, at Romans chapter 1, um, verses 14 to 17. If you would stand with me as we read God's word together, Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 14, Paul writes, "I am under obligation." Both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word. may be seated. You join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. We have your truth given to us. How we are so humbled as we consider the glory of what you have accomplished and entrusted to us. Help us now. Lord, as we open your word, God, I pray that as I speak, that it would be your word that goes forth. Lord, if I have anything to say that is not from you, that is not true to your word, that those words would fall to the ground and be forgotten. God, as your word is proclaimed, may we humbly bow before it. Lord, may we recognize the the truth and the power and the weight of your your word and, and be submissive to it. Lord, we ask your spirit to come. Open our eyes, soften our hard hearts that we may see your truth and be changed by it, conformed to the image of Christ for the glory of your name, God, we pray, amen. So the book of Romans, as you know, is is one of the deepest, richest, most complex theological books in the Bible. Um, It's written by the apostle Paul to the the church in the city of Rome, a church he had never been to, but he had friends there. And uh, he hoped to visit them soon, uh, but because he was not able to come to them immediately, he, he wrote them this letter. And these verses, specifically verses 16 and 17, have often been said to be uh, the thesis statement of the book of Romans. This is the big idea. Uh, that the next 15 chapters are unpacking this truth. So as we look at these few verses today um, and think about our role in evangelism, I want us to see um, the pull of the gospel and the power of the gospel, and then to rest in the peace of the gospel. So that's that's where we're going. But first, uh, verses 14 and 15, uh, we should feel the pull of the gospel. Most of your Bibles probably have a a paragraph break there um, between verses 15 and 16. There's a bit of a logical move there. 14 and 15 are kind of the tail end of, of Paul explaining why he wants to come to Rome and, and why he, he wants to come visit their, their church and their city. And the first reason is that, that they as believers might mutually encourage one another, like we're doing today that I get to come and say, greetings from the church in olds and olds and, and fellowship with you. That's what he desires to do there. He wants to, to visit them to encourage one another. Then verse 13 explains a second reason. And he says that he might reap a harvest among them and among the rest of the Gentiles. He wants to go to Rome to see lost people saved. He wants to preach the gospel there also. And in verse 14, he gets into the, the why beneath that, the kind of undergirds that. And that's where we wanna pick up uh, this evening. Why does he want to preach the gospel there? This, this pull of the gospel on his heart. And you see, um, he says, um, I'm obligated. So We have a debt to share the gospel. That idea of obligation, that's, that's, a, that's a good translation, but both in the Greek and somewhat in the English, it, it has this idea of an indebtedness. And so it's interesting. He, he speaks of this debt, but his debt is not to the Lord. His debt is to the people there. Specifically, he says the, the, the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the foolish why? Why is he indebted to them? He's never stolen from them. He's never borrowed from them. What, what is this debt that he speaks of? Well, think of it this way. Um, your church is in a similar position to ours, meeting in a, a rented space. We would love to, to buy or build a building, have our own kind of home church, our own space. And, and, and what would happen if I were to learn that I had some distant relative pass away and leave me millions of dollars, and, and out of my magnanimous generosity, I said, you know what? I, I wanna see a church built in Red Deer. And so I, were to, I would go to the bank and take out $10 million in cash. I don't even know, is that a duffel bag or bigger? Um, and uh, and I would just take that $10, $10 million and give it to Chris and say, Chris, take this back to your church, take this back to your people, Build your dream building. Now, Chris hasn't borrowed from the church. He hasn't taken anything from the church. But so long as he has that bag full of cash, so long as it is still in his possession, um, he's indebted to the church. He has an obligation that he needs to fulfill. That delivery needs to be made. Paul feels the same way with the gospel. God has entrusted him with this good news, with this gift of the gospel, this message of salvation has been given to him and and he has this burden to, to proclaim it, to deliver it, to fulfill that obligation. Now it's true, Paul's in a unique position as an apostle and as the apostle to the Gentiles, but haven't we received the same gospel that he received? Haven't we been blessed with the same blessings? Forgiveness of sin, adoption of the family of God, the, the promise of an, of an inheritance in glory, every bit as much as Paul had. And haven't we been sent out? Jesus said to, to all of his disciples, go and, and make disciples of all nations. Listen carefully, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You can flip there if you want or just jot it down. Look it up later. 2 Corinthians 5, Starting in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, listen, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. To whom has that message of reconciliation been entrusted? All of those who've been reconciled. If you know the truth, if by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven of your sin and brought near to God, then you've been entrusted with that message, that gospel for the world. We, like Paul, have an obligation, a debt to be fulfilled. Now, just briefly notice to whom Paul says he's obligated. He says the Greeks and the barbarians, uh, the wise and the foolish. Now, when the, when the Romans heard those words, the Greeks and the barbarians, what they would hear there uh, is to say the insiders and the outsiders, the locals and the foreigners. The same is true with the, the wise and the foolish, kind of the same effect. It's pointing to, to two different ends of the spectrum and the implication is everybody in between. It's for everyone. Our obligation is is to all people. He's very much echoing Jesus from Acts 1.8. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. All people everywhere. I fear we so quickly categorize, at least I see this wrestle in my own heart. We got to share the gospel and, and how quickly we think, Oh, that person or, or this neighbor, they seem like someone who would, who would hear the gospel. They seem like someone who might be interested in Christ and, and, and they're, they're like us, so that makes sense to me. If we look at someone else and say, actually, let's be honest, we would never say it, not out loud. They're not like us. They're different. Maybe they're, maybe they're too far gone. And we forget where we came from. That's not the the kind of person who would likely come to Christ. And and maybe in our hearts we even say, I'm not even sure I want them to come. They just don't really fit. Paul's right. We're we're obligated to everyone, the wise and the foolish, the the cultured and the uncultured. It doesn't matter. It's to every human being. And our obligation to everyone is what? We would preach, proclaim, that's how we fulfill this task. Um, the Greek word there, preach, is the word euangelizo, and, and, and it's, it's where we got our English word evangelism. Um, it's a combination of, of the word good and message just kind of smashed together. It's, it's the good message. We often get caught up and concerned about whether people will get saved or not. Will I be able to convince them of the truth? Am I going to say all the right things? Am I going to be able to, to answer all of their objections and defend the truth? Am I going to be able to close the deal? And of course, of course, we want people to, to hear and respond in faith and be saved. That's, that's why we're sharing. We want them to receive it. And so we want to be winsome and passionate. And we're going to be pleading and, and persistent. But... Our debt, our obligation is not to save people. You don't have that kind of power. That's that's way outside of your pay grade. It's it's just not something we're capable of doing. And if you bear that burden as you go into into sharing the gospel, you're right to be absolutely paralyzed by, by fear and insecurity. That is not a burden that you can bear. But it's not your burden to bear. That's not our job. Our job is not to transform hearts. Our, our job is simply to proclaim the truth, to, to, to deliver the good message. Going back to our illustration of the backpack full of cash. It's not your job to make people open it, take it. It's not your job to, to build the building. It's just your job to drop it off. Just take it, deliver it. we feel the pull of that responsibility? Do you feel that obligation in your heart with your with your neighbors, with your coworkers, the people you rub shoulders with every day? Christianity is is not so much a a come and see religion. There's nothing wrong with inviting people to church. I hope you're inviting people to come and see what's going on here, um, but we are primarily a go and tell people. Right? We gather here as believers to worship Christ to spur one another on and then we scatter out as missionaries. That's where the gospel goes forward. We infiltrate every sector of this city as we go into our workplaces and leisure and, and neighborhoods. We take the gospel. We share. We deliver this good news. Who are the people in your life right now? Stop and think. Let a couple names come up. Who are the people that, that you could talk to this week? Did you commit to do that? Did you take a minute before the Lord right now? Say, so God, I'm going to start that conversation before Friday. I'm going to do it. And I'm to, have to finish the conversation. Just broach it. Man, I love to just ask people, hey, did you drop going to church? People love to tell you their story. What do you think about God, heaven, and hell? I'll tell you all kinds of things. And then you have the opportunity to say, let me, let me tell you what the Bible says. Let me tell you what I believe. Now notice... There's a distinct shift between verses 14 and 15. He begins saying that he's obligated. There's an external burden on him to share the gospel with everyone and anyone. But then, verse 15, he shifts to an internal motivation. He says, I am eager to preach. Man, eager to preach. It's not just a debt, it's a desire burning in him, an excitement, a passion. He's eager to fulfill this obligation. Verse 16 tells us why. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To Jews first and also to the Greek. We need to feel that pull of the gospel but we need to also know the power of the gospel first question we need to answer as we come to this text is why does paul even say that he's not ashamed a lot of people kind of commentators kind of scramble over themselves they want to defend paul no no he wasn't it's not like he was ashamed paul would never be ashamed i think john stott makes a good point in saying there's really there's really no sense in saying you're not ashamed unless there's a temptation to have been ashamed and of course there is. There is all kinds of temptation to be ashamed. Paul himself said, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness, it's ridiculous. They might laugh at me. No, they will laugh at you. Back in the 50s, uh, they were doing some archeological digging in, in the city of Rome, and, and they came across what, what some have said is probably the earliest depiction of Christ. And it's graffiti scratched onto a wall. And it's a picture of a man standing in front of a cross. And there's a text below it. It says, Alexamenos worshiping his God. So they're, they're mocking this Alexamenos guy. Here he is, worshiping his God. And, and the figure on the cross is not a person, but a donkey. That's what the world thought of Christianity. Look, <laughs> he's, he's worshiping this. This donkey God who died on a cross, fool. Is it any different today? We're out of step with the modern world. We don't fit. We don't belong here. We don't believe the the obvious science of evolution. We're not on board with a woman's right to abort a child. We're not affirming of gay and trans lifestyles. You guys record these Just going online? Am I gonna get canceled now? Um, It's just, we don't fit, we don't make sense. We're out of touch. Christianity does not fit in this world. And both in the Roman and the modern culture, how audaciously small-minded, how absurd to argue that people are not generally good, but generally evil essentially bad deserving of judgment and that there is one way to be saved. Trusting in Jesus, this supposed God who was murdered on a cross. It's absurd. There is ample opportunity for us to be ashamed. We We need to own that, admit that. And Christianity comes up around the office, around the shop or on YouTube or Facebook. How many times is that a positive conversation? not often. Listen, Paul says, "I am eager to go to Rome where Alexander was being mocked for his faith. I'm eager to go there and preach the gospel in a pagan world." Why? Because it's the power of God It's the power of God. In spite of all the mocking and insulting, in spite of the the constant maligning and misunderstanding, this gospel that we're obligated to proclaim is itself the power of God. So you see why Paul would shift from from obligation and from the temptation to shame, to being eager. This This is an unbelievable privilege. So often as we step out to share the gospel, we do it with hesitancy, we do it with trembling, or apologetic, like, I'm sorry to waste your time with this, I, I don't wanna make you uncomfortable. I'm asking a lot of you as I share, and, and we doubt, we wonder, like, what are the chances that someone's actually gonna hear this and, and repent of their sin and turn to Christ? It's so unlikely. Like, can I really expect this person to just just turn from their sin and follow Jesus because I've told them this story? But this message, it's not just the truth. It's not just good news. It is the actual power of God. The gospel is the power of God. When we talk about human power, we so often focus on the power to kill and destroy, the power to obliterate a whole city But that that destructive power is nothing compared to the power it takes to bring a soul out of death into life. Now, if this is our power, if this is something that that we have been entrusted with, we ought to speak. Now, if, if it needs to come from us, if we're the ones who who are, who are tasked with accomplishing the task, yeah, doubt would be too weak a word, right? Like this would be absolutely hopeless. Jeremiah thirteen twenty three: Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Then also, can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? So go ahead, give it a try. Can you can you change your skin color? How about your eye color? Maybe your height or your looks. Anybody? I mean, if we don't have the power to change the most basic physical things about ourselves, what makes us think we have the power to change hearts, the very nature of who we are? And that's exactly Jesus' point as he's talking with Nicodemus. John 3, 3, Jesus answered, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, that doesn't make any sense. How can I be born again? I I think I wasn't able to give birth to myself the first time. Jesus says, you're right. You can't. It's not a power that you have. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He's spiritually dead. He's, he's dead in his trespasses and sins. And the gospel is this spiritual truth. He has no ability to love the things of God. There is no power of man. There is no machine or weapon that we possess that could do that. The only hope we have is the gospel, the power of God working through it. So 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You catch that? You guys are going through Genesis. Not that long ago you were talking about the creation of the world. The first day God speaks into nothingness and light comes into being. Paul says it's that same power. That's that same power at work in the salvation of a, of a dead soul that God speaks into a dark heart and he brings the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. So as we speak the gospel, as we fulfill this task of just delivering this message in, in the sense of our own inability and, and, and trembling, There is limitless hope. We can preach with confidence because the gospel is the power of God. Notice, it is the power of God for salvation. It's not one way. It's not one of God's tools. It is the only way of salvation. There's two sides to that as we think about that. First, no one will be saved apart from Christ. Acts 4:12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The power of God for the salvation in the gospel is, is in the, the hearing and believing of the good news of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. If you don't know Jesus, you're not saved. That's it. No one will be saved apart from Christ, apart from knowing and trusting in him explicitly. But it also means that no one will be saved apart from the proclamation of the gospel. And yes, that message is proclaimed in various ways in TVs and books and pamphlets, but but that message is essential. Somebody's got to share it. God doesn't save people other ways. Romans 10, 13, uh, a beloved verse for many, for, for good reason. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Hallelujah. And then verse 14. How then will they call on whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in whom they've never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? There it is. There's our obligation. There's our, our debt. That's what we ought to be eager to do. God has entrusted us with that message of reconciliation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and he sent us to deliver it. At the end of verse 16, then, we see again, is this salvation for everyone who believes. Similar to verse 14, the, the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the foolish. Here he says, the Jews and the Greeks. These are two sides of humanity two different categories and and of course he's implying kind of everyone in between there's a a spiritual dynamic to these two categories Paul will explain that in detail in Romans 10 and 11 you can go read that later Um, but the, the promises of God were first made to the Jews he was the the Messiah Jesus came as Messiah to the Jews God's chosen people the Greeks being Gentiles being non-Jews had no claim on that promise, no right to that promise. They were not God's chosen people. And yet as the Jews rejected Jesus, God was working out his plan from before the beginning of time that Jesus would be a light to the nations. That heaven would be filled with people from every tribe and language and people and nation that the gospel would, would go out. This power would be on display in saving people from every walk of life, every spiritual background, every nation. Do we really know the power of that gospel? Do we really understand that, that mighty work of God for the salvation of, of lost sinners, giving life to dead souls? Oh, if we just, if we really grasp that, if we could really wrap our minds around that, how could we ever be ashamed? We knew that truth in our hearts. We we wouldn't be fearful. We wouldn't be timid. We we would be eager. We would be excited at every opportunity. And we know that God in his plan, he he, he does not save every person we talk to. At least that's not been my experience. If that's been yours, I'd like to bring you with me to Olds. We we got some work to do. Um, But I don't think so. And yet, Every every gospel conversation is opening that door with every possibility that the mighty power of God might just come blowing through. We need to feel the pull of that gospel responsibility. We need to know the, the power of that gospel. Thirdly, then I think Paul calls us to rest in the peace of the gospel. Rest in the peace of the gospel. This is verse 17. He says, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Again, following the, the logical flow of these verses, Paul feels indebted to preach the gospel at the same time, eager to do so because this, this gospel is the power of God for, for saving everyone who believes. Why? Verse 17, it is able to save anyone who believes because in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So what does that mean? Well, first, let's, let's look at, at this idea of the righteousness of God revealed. There are multiple options, different things. People have wrestled over how to understand the righteousness of God revealed uh, in verse 17 um, and, and what exactly that's talking about. Three, three kind of main ways it's been explained. First is that the, in the gospel, um, we, we see the attribute of God's righteousness. We see that God is righteous. Secondly, um, Others have said in the gospel, we see the, the activity of God making people righteous and the, 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 the action of that. The third option is that in the gospel, we see the righteousness that God has achieved for those who have faith. In the gospel, we see the, the gift of righteousness that God imputes to, gives to the believer. And so you can see why this debate goes on because all three of those options are thoroughly biblical. All three of those can be seen in other places of scripture. They're, they're good and right and true. The question is, what is, what is he saying here? What is Paul's intent in, in these verses? And I think the context of these verses and the flow of the argument um, leads me to believe that it's the third option. The gospel is the power of God, is the salvation for everyone who believes, regardless if they're Jew or Gentile, Greek or barbarian, wise or foolish, because in the gospel, God has achieved for us a righteousness that is not our own. Because we didn't bring anything to the table and save anyone who believes because it doesn't depend on us. The gospel gives righteousness as a gift. In this context, our, our greatest need that the gospel provides for us is is not the knowledge that God is righteous or the activity of God in making people righteous, but the provision of God of a righteousness that we just don't have. This gets us right to the heart of the gospel. As we talked a lot about the gospel so far this this evening, um, but we have not yet stopped to define it. So let's do that. What is the gospel? One of my favorite questions to ask, Chris, I would encourage you, it's a fun thing to do as you meet new people. Now you guys have warning. Um, just ask them, what is the gospel? Just let them sweat a little bit. It's good for us. What is the gospel? And of course, if we're feeling the pull of the gospel and knowing the power of the gospel, uh, boy, we wanna, we wanna be able to clearly articulate the gospel, right? Well, that, that should be an answer that we can give quickly and clearly there are a number of different helps and ways to kind of outline the gospel, the Romans road or the way of the master. There's some great tools out there. Um, personally, in the back of my mind, um, I like to use this little four word grid. Um, it's found in, in Greg Gilbert's little book, the What is the Gospel? Um, and, and those four words are God, man, Christ response. First is God. He is holy and just and perfect and perfect. He created this world and as creator, it's his, he owns it. And then there's man. We were created in God's image for his glory, created to have relationship with him in which we would find all of our joy and and purpose and meaning and satisfaction in life. We sinned against him. We rebelled against him. We broke that relationship, went off looking for our joy and our satisfaction in in, in things of the, the created world rather than the creator himself. So that's God and man and then Christ. That's why Jesus came. Because for our sin, we deserved death and hell and that is why this broken world is as it is as we rebel against the creator and it continues to to stress and fracture and spin out of control jesus came as god himself to take on human flesh died on the cross in our place he took the punishment that we deserved so that we could be reconciled to god and he rose victorious from the grave as as proof that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. And as this declaration, that he had utterly defeated our greatest enemy of sin and death. God, man, Christ, response. This good news requires an active response. The biblical response is twofold, repentance and faith. Really two sides of the same coin. Repentance is to turn away from sin, turn away from that, rebellion, renounce that old life of rebellion against God and life for myself. And faith is to turn to Christ, to trust him as Savior, submit to him as Lord. God, man, Christ response. Now, if I'm talking with someone and and trying to really grasp if they understand that gospel, if they're really getting it, I'm prone to ask another question. If you were to die today and stand before the Lord, And for the sake of argument, let's say Satan was there convicting you. I saw John, he was short-tempered with his kids, lied to his wife, he watched that show he shouldn't have. He did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. And he's right, there's no denying it. He deserves hell. he's guilty. What are you gonna say? God looks at you and says, this is true, why should I let you into my heaven? Go ahead, think about it. Come up with your own answer. What would you say? How would you answer God? Why should I let you into my heaven? How many people, when it comes right down to it, will say, well, I went to church. I didn't go to that R-rated movie. I didn't drink too much. I I tried not to swear too much. I even gave in the offering. I'm a pretty good person. I'm, I'm better than my neighbor. If that's your answer or or any variation of that, let me me boil it down simple for you. If if your answer begins with the word I, it's wrong. It's hopeless. There's no salvation there. The only acceptable answer, the only answer that that saves is the answer that verse 17 gives. This is the, the spark that actually ignited the reformation. I don't know if you know this, Romans one seventeen. that's where it began. Martin Luther, a Catholic university professor, had been studying the book of Romans for many years. He had read this verse for years in the Latin as it was only ever read in the Catholic church. In the Latin, it says that the gospel, uh, the justificare of God is revealed. And that Latin word, justificare, most naturally means this this idea of, of actual practical righteousness. And so what Luther understood, along with the Catholic Church, was that in the gospel... Through the church, through the sacraments of, of baptism and penance and confession, our day-to-day lives would be slowly transformed and shaped toward righteous living, made more functionally righteous until we deserve heaven. or close to it and purgatory kind of cleans up the rest. God's grace is what empowers us to be more holy so that we can get ourselves into heaven. But Luther, who had studied law and had the mind of a lawyer, understood just how perfect you would have to be. What would one sin do to me in the righteousness of God? And so he was so burdened by this this unachievable task. And he spent hours in confession every day, and he struggled and and wrestled with God in, in absolute terror, because of the sin that he saw in himself and and the condemnation that that he was under. It's from that understanding, um, Luther wrote about this very verse. He said, and so I hated the righteousness of God. And that was my story growing up in a Christian home, sharing the gospel with people, but not knowing, not understanding grace in my heart, trying to be perfect before God, trying to keep up this great facade hated the righteousness of God because all he could see in it was the condemnation of God, how God was righteous and he was not until one day Luther got his hands on something quite novel in his day, a Greek New Testament. And he came to Romans one seventeen in the Greek. Listen to these words. Then finally God had mercy on me and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And in that sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel is passive, meaning it's something we receive. It's a gift indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. In the same moment, the face of the whole scripture became apparent to me. My mind ran through the scriptures so far as I was able to recollect them, seeking analogies and other phrases such as the work of God by which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God by which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God, just as intensely as I had Hated the expression "the righteousness of God." I now lovingly praised this most pleasant word. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate of paradise. Luther was saved. Luther came to understand the gospel, the righteousness of God, not as a condemnation over, it's not as a bar that we have to reach, but as a gift given to us in grace the gospel message. If the gospel is something that we can listen to so that we can begin to do a little better, begin to clean ourselves up, begin, begin to, to, to earn a little more of our salvation, then, then brothers and sisters, let me be clear, we will be damned. That's it, it's over. If we're trusting before God in, in anything that we have done or must do, And we can expect nothing from God except judgment. All of our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags. The answer to that question in the courtroom of God, why should I let you into my heaven? The only answer in which there's any hope is Jesus. Jesus. It's him. He, He died in my place and his righteousness has been given to me. I deserve nothing but but, but Jesus. Luther called it an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from outside of me, not from within me. The righteousness of God that belongs to Christ, but through the gospel is imparted to me. Luther's word again, uh, justification is not a change in man, but the gracious declaration of God by which he pronounces righteousness, sorry, by which he pronounces righteous, the sinner who in himself is not righteous. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed as a gift. And if that righteousness is from him and not at all from us, then there's hope. If righteousness is a a gift from God, then then anyone can be saved. The most wretched and vile, the foolish, the simple, uh, the undeserving, the outcast can just as easily and completely be saved because it doesn't depend on them. Because the righteousness of God is enough. And then in that, our salvation is, as Paul says, from faith for faith or from faith to faith i think the simplest way to understand that is just to say it's all faith beginning to end start to finish we are saved by grace through faith alone and so paul finishes verse 17 quoting the the central and key verses of the book of habakkuk habakkuk the the people of israel were were living in sin and rebellion against god and God was bringing judgment on them, uh, destruction, and, and he was using the, the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonians, to, to do it. And, and Habakkuk is wrestling with God, questioning God's righteousness. How can you use a, a wicked people, even more wicked people, to punish the lesser wickedness of your people? Is this okay? And, and you know the story. Habakkuk cries out to God and he says, I'll wait, I'll wait in the watchtower. I will stand and wait for your answer. And, and this is the Lord's answer, Habakkuk 2.4 Behold, his soul is puffed up. He is not not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. That's the crux of the book of Habakkuk right there. The the righteous will live by faith. The proud, the the self-sufficient, the arrogant, those trying to, to stand before God on their own, trying to earn their own righteousness, saying, God, look at me, look what I've done for you. They have no hope. Those who are righteous, those who have true life, they they have it by faith, by trusting God. The Lord is saying, just trust me. Be humble, be broken before me. Don't don't question this, just trust me. The enemies surround you, they are fierce, they are terrifying. This world and my plan will often be outside of your simple understanding and your ability to see. but, But trust me and live. Trust me and I will deliver you. Are you resting in the peace of the gospel? It's real easy to show up at church every week, give in the offering and sing the songs and do all the right things and get up in the morning and read your Bible all the while trying to earn something from God, trying to prove your your worth before God rather than just resting in the gift that he's given. We ought to do those things. We've got to do them out of delight, out of joy, resting in the righteousness of God, trusting in him. Let's not forget where we started in resting in the peace of the gospel, in receiving this unbelievable gift. We ought also to feel the pull of the gospel again. The indebtedness that we have to share this, this glorious hope. This is the message that we have for a world that is, that is so desperate and so needy and so broken to proclaim this good news to all who will listen, confident in the power of God, inviting others to come, come and find the rest that there is in Christ. There's a, there's a righteousness here as a gift. You don't even have to earn it. You don't deserve it. It's okay. It's here for you. One of our, six key attributes as a church is courageous evangelism in word and in deed. Are we living that out together? I know many of you are. As we go out from this gathering, we go out as evangelists. We go out into our world. When you go back to work on Monday, you feel the pull of the gospel. Will you trust in the power of the gospel? Will you be resting in the peace of the gospel and and eagerly inviting others to come and know this joy, this rest, this great salvation? Matthew 9, 37, then Jesus said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers among his harvest. The harvest is plentiful. Do, Do we believe that? How often I walk around thinking, if I were to share the gospel with all these people, I don't think anyone would listen. Jesus says, no, it's plentiful. There are souls ready, waiting that the Holy Spirit will be at work. Just speak, share. The Holy Spirit has gone ahead of us. All we need to do is proclaim it. It's the laborers that are few. And church, we are those laborers. We are those messengers sent out. So I encourage you, think about it. Who, who can you share that gospel with even, even this week? We feeling that pull of the gospel, trusting in the power of the gospel and resting in the peace of the gospel, let me pray. Father, thank you for your kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. God, we are humbled before you. Lord, I pray that we would feel uh, this indebtedness that we have, having been given so much, having been blessed so richly, that we would be eager to go. God, I confess in my own heart, how how often I have just been comfortable in my own salvation, comfortable sitting at home, rejoicing in you and have failed to proclaim it. How often we doubt it. How often we're overwhelmed by the powers of this world and the the force of the, the culture. God, this gospel is your power for salvation to everyone who believes. God, help us to stand in awe of that power, to have hope in that, to have confidence in that. And Lord, above all, that we will be resting in the peace that is in this glorious gospel, the righteousness of God for us, to cover us. And that as we proclaim that gospel, it will be done um, joyfully, winsomely, inviting others to know this great peace, this hope is found in Christ and Christ alone. God, you have said that the fields are ripe and we respond, here am I. Send me. Overcome our fear. Work through us, God, for the glory of your name. We want to see lost people saved. Would you be about that work through us, we pray in Jesus' name.
1: stand with us.